Welcome to Ink in Your Veins. I'm your host, Rachel Heron. In this podcast, I talk to authors about the best things they've learned about writing so we can try those things too. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 407 of Ink in Your Veins. I'm Rachel Heron, and I'm so thrilled that you are here today as we are talking to Jeff Elkins. You may have heard him making the rounds of the podcastosphere, and he is just a delight. And it was so fun to talk to this guy about the dialogue. Doctor, we'll see you now. So that is coming up in the interview portion of this episode. What's going on around here? Okay, what is going on around here? Number one, uh, sorry about the sound quality. I am using an old microphone because I left the mic stand for my good microphone over in the recording studio where I have been recording Unstuck, an audacious hunt for home and happiness. Uh, which is my New Zealand memoir. I have been having such a good time narrating this. I I think I mentioned that I found that our local library has a little studio where I can record it. And I can only go there for free for two hours a day. I can't record for more than two hours a day. My throat is already sore just from those two hours of concentrated vocal effort. And it has been so fun to do this. So I'm doing a lot of that. I'll be back there in the morning. And hopefully my mic stand will still be there in the morning. I'm sure it will. This is New Zealand. People tend to not steal things. I remember one lovely afternoon where I was near the ocean and I pulled over to go for a quick swim, which is exactly as delightful as it sounds. And I was walking along the seawall and on the seawall were a couple of bags, a woman's purse, and a phone that was in one of those um, wallet cases and the wallet was open so I could see her phone and all her credit cards. And they, the people who had left those things there were just out in the water, splashing around. They were out several hundred yards swimming and splashing. And that's just where they'd left their stuff on the side of the sidewalk that attached to the beach. So I'm not worried about my mic stand (laughs) disappearing. Uh, That's been going great. And I have uploaded the paperback and the hardcover with the beautiful dust jacket. I have uploaded those to Lulu, who I'm doing the printing through for the Kickstarter, which uh, will be announced hopefully sooner rather than later. I don't want to announce the Kickstarter formally until I can do the video that goes along with Kickstarter with me holding the books and showing you this is what the hardcover looks like. How beautiful is it? This is what the paperback looks like. And Lulu does take a while to get product to New Zealand, which is not surprising. So um, after that, I'll be launching the Kickstarter and letting you know all about that. That will be fun. Very excited about that. Uh, Another thing going on around here is summer has sprung. You might be able to see if you're looking at the video that I'm a little bit pink. I have been to the beach three times this week. One of my ears is giving me problem because I, I keep getting so much water in it. It is just gorgeous. It has been incredible weather. Yesterday it was um, about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 26, 27 Celsius, which to me is too hot unless I am at the beach, unless I am lying in the sand with a book 
and a drink of water and usually an ice cream cone because there's usually ice cream near the beach here and there are so many beaches and it's been wonderful. I'm really, really enjoying summer and getting my body into the sun, getting my my body into the water feels wonderful. So that's been going on. And I think that's about it. Thank you for um, responding so well to the Money Honey episode. I always have a vulnerability hangover after I post it. And um, honestly, this year, it wasn't too bad. I had it. And then I re- and then I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get terrible emails. And so far, I haven't gotten one terrible email. Usually, I get a couple. So I assume they're still coming. But you know, usually, has, somebody has something to say about how I don't deserve to do money, what I'm doing, um, by doing what I'm doing. And um, God bless them. Those just get erased and marked as spam. But I am curious as to where they are. And uh, uh, that's okay. please don't send them. But I've just gotten beautiful, wonderful notes and comments back about it. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for letting me share that with you. And um, I think that you're amazing. And I truly mean that. You By you being here and listening and participating in this journey of your own, your own writing journey, by hanging out with me, we are both getting stronger and I feel a little bit sheepish and woo-woo when I say this, but I do truly believe that we are all on this journey together. Speaking of journeys, before we get into the interview, I want to just do a very quick um, Patreon question, the mini coaching question, because I've only got one and it's just been sitting there not being answered and I would like to answer it. Also, any of you who are at that Patreon level of $5 a month, please use me to ask any questions that you would like. I am here for you and I love to answer these questions. So that'll be coming up. But firstly, I want to tell you about um, two little opportunities which are important to me. Uh, The first one is a new course being offered by Mona McDermott. You may know Mona from being on the show, episode number 366. She wrote one of my favorite books, which is called The 38 Impossible Loves of Naoko Nishizawa. And she's one of my favorite people. I was just thinking about her yesterday after uh, we recently had a really lovely chat that I feel so blessed in my life to have found new friends as I, as I'm, you know, I'm getting older and it's hard to find friends as adults, but Mona is one of those people who I would have wanted desperately for a friend had I met her anywhere in the world at any point in my life. And the fact that we have each other now and that we get to hang out and talk and um, not only have this deep friendship, but also support each other in our writing means so much to me. And uh, you have heard me talk about her courses before. Mona is the one who got me back into poetry. Um, I've taken at least three or four of her courses, maybe more basic. <laughs> this is this is uh, this is absolutely true. When she launched this course, I saw the, I I saw the email. I clicked in. I paid the money, and PayPal said there was an error, and it didn't say that it had gone through. So I did it again, and I got the same error. And then I clicked away, but I hadn't taken a screenshot, and I wanted to help Mona out, so I did it again. Got the same error. Sent Mona the screenshot. Said, and I you know I said there's a problem with signing up. Here's a screenshot. Here's the problem that's going on. 
And, you know, obviously the the problem has been fixed. The problem wasn't even there. There was some kind of error being thrown onto my screen. However, I had paid her three times (laughs) as she went to her computer. She she saw three new signups from one person. She had to refund me twice. So (laughs) that's how eager I am to take her classes. And I wanted to share it with you. She did not ask me to share this with you. Um, I'm not an affiliate or anything like that. I just think that her classes are so beautiful. And if you want to take class with me, as a student, we can be students together in Mona's class. It is called, uh, let me see, um, Seven Rooms, a new online course. And I'm just going to read you a few things from her website. Uh, this course is not about changing your life, but about accepting the life you are in and making it as lovely as possible. She says, uh, you are doing such a beautiful job of being you. It is highly unlikely that the way you want to feel is connected to external things like a fancier car or marble countertops in your kitchen, although there's nothing wrong with a lovely marble countertop. You don't need anything else, including the permission of another living soul. We write our own permission slips in seven rooms. So uh, seven rooms, experiments in peacemaking and delight taking. The course is built on the idea of creating a metaphorical home for yourself. And it's going to be an eight-week course for tender-hearted people. There are going to be, um, let's see, the dates for it. Uh, it's running Monday, the 12th of February until Saturday, the 6th of April. And the classes meet on Zoom on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Each class will include a writing prompt, some teaching, and a period for discussion. I have to tell you that having been in these classes, they go in the blink of an eye. I'm never ready for the class to stop that day. I am always so wildly inspired. Um, The classes will be recorded for those not able to attend. Uh, For each each, uh, week of the course, there's a module, and and that includes a room with a general idea or focus. And the rooms are listed on her site, but they include things like um, the entryway, what keeps us from ourselves, uh, the altar, the befriending of yourself, the tatami room, connecting with others, the bedroom, rest and relaxation. Um, I think you should take it. If you want to take a class with me, you should just take it. And uh, let's see what else do I want to grab here off of her site. Uh, the course is for you if you believe you have not been living slash experiencing your life the way you would like it to. The course is for you if you believe that you deserve to feel more joy, peace, ease, and if you're willing to play. Uh, it is 350 Canadian dollars, and I must stress Canadian dollars because that's a lot cheaper in American money. Um, so if you are, are in American money, this is a deal, and I will be taking it. I made a, you can search for Mona McDermott, which is M-O-N-N-A-M-C-D-I-A-R-M-I-D, and the course, or you can just go to rachelheron.com slash seven rooms is a short link that I made because it's going to be easier for you to remember if you're out there driving around and you want to do this. It's the word seven rooms, rachelherron.com slash seven rooms, and that will auto redirect to her site. And uh, I think you should take it. All right. Another thing I want to tell you about from another amazing, amazing person. Um, This is Josie Smith and Josie was on the show in episode number 303. And she's doing something really cool. 
that may suit you. Um, here's what she said. I'm an author, accelerator, certified book coach, and the author of six cozy mystery novels. I'm looking to build my coaching business by doing market research calls to writers with writers to understand their challenges and aspirations when it comes to writing a novel. In particular, I'm looking to speak with writers of color who want to finish a novel, but who have struggled to make it happen and think they could benefit from extra support as they work to finish the novel of their dreams. I'm not looking to sell anything on this call. I'm just trying to understand the challenges and goals of the kind of writer I hope to work with long-term so I can build a business that supports those writers. In exchange for a 20-minute research call with me, where I'll ask a few questions and get their perspective, I'm offering a free 30-minute coaching call to work through a writing issue that people might be dealing with. Starting a novel, choosing an idea, brainstorming a revision plan. We would decide on the topic once we are on the research call. If anyone identifies as the type of writer I'm hoping to speak with and would be open to chatting, they can get in touch with me through my Instagram, which is Josie Smith Book Coach. And Josie is J-O-S-E-E. Smith but coach or through Rachel's Slack group for writers. So if you're um Rachel speaking again, uh if you're in Onward Writer, you can contact Josie. Just search J-O-S-E-E or look for Josie Smith book coach at at Instagram. And Josie is awesome. And she's offering this free 30-minute coaching call to writers of color who want to finish a novel but who have struggled to make it happen. So if you if that is you please read out, reach out to Josie or go listen to her on episode number 303 and you will be dying to work with her. Um, so please take advantage of that. All right, that's enough of um, me pushing things that I love. And now I just want to answer Brian's question, which, uh, uh, where did I put it? Here it is. Brian, thank you for your patronage, Brian, and for your patience as I got to this question, which is kind of a... Um, a great and simple one and very hard to answer. Ryan says, how do you balance your reading with your actual writing? It's so easy to get sucked into either to the exclusion of the other. I have absolutely struggled with that over the years. Um, I have gone back and forth with how to do it. For me, and for a lot of other people that I talk to who are writers, we notice that the more we write, the more it helps to refill ourselves with words that we didn't write, with books that we had nothing to do with. We're refilling that well by reading. However, writing does take a lot of time and writing and then reading about writing can or studying about writing and listening to podcasts about writing. We can kind of get a bit obsessed about those kind of things when we are in the 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 act and the practice of getting especially a lot of writing done. Um, so for me, it has to be an active choice that I make. And every year I choose how many books I want to read. Uh, for a long time, it was 52 books because um, I wanted to read one book a week. 52 books in a year was great. Then I met and exceeded that for a few years. I do track this on Goodreads, although I'm also in, oh, what's that other one called? Story. I've just forgotten the name of the other one. Story, Story Graph. Lord, I'll look it up. There is another one that is an alternative that my um, sister and other people like better than Goodreads. Goodreads is a little bit clunky, I think. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I set my goal as 100 books a year. So an average of two-ish books a week, which I have not hit 
The first year I set that goal, I read 85 books. Last year, I wrote, I read 75 books. So this year, instead of setting a goal of 100 books, I've set a goal of 76 books. I've set a goal of one book more than I read last year. And I, I am competitive. I am no Sasha Black, but I do have competition in my top 10 strengths. I don't love to compete against other people, but I do love to compete against myself. So when I finish a book on my Kindle and I push the, I have read this button, it'll tell me how many books I need to read a week to complete the goal by the end of the year and hit my goal, hit my target. That helps keep me motivated and helps keep me going. So if you are competitive, even in the slightest, set some kind of goal somewhere. Super, super helpful to me. The other thing uh, for me, I make the choice to read because I'm a better writer. Not only because I read, of course I am. We have to read as writers. Writers who do not read are not doing a good job of being writers. And I know that sounds harsh, but I really mean it. Um, If people are trying to be writers, but not reading at all and have never liked reading, I've never understood that. I don't know how they can write good books. So we are readers. We are all readers. But I have to choose to read. And for me, that also looks like putting limits on my social media usage. Right now, I have it under 30 minutes a day. And in those 30 minutes a day, I've built it. I've mentioned this before, but I've built on my phone. I have put timers on them so that they so that the social media apps I look at turn off. I get five minutes of Instagram a day. Uh, Currently, I get 10 minutes of Reddit and 10 minutes of, um, oh, what's the thing I like? Blue Sky. And technically five minutes of TikTok, but five minutes of TikTok can stir my brain up so much that currently I have it set at zero minutes. So it never turns on unless I want to use it for business. So honestly, right now I'm at 25 minutes of social media. After that, my phone, you know, bricks for social media and I kind of stare at it and then I go, oh, right, I'm meant to read. I read over every meal that I do not share with another human being. I share dinner with my wife and with my sister most nights. But for breakfast and lunch, I read during that time. Usually for breakfast and lunch, I choose to spend 15 to 30 minutes afterwards with a cup of tea reading. It is such a joyous, joyful thing for me to do. And not only am I doing this because I love reading and because I want to be a better writer, But for me, when we are talking about happiness and the places that happiness can be found, if you've followed any of those happiness studies, um, Lori, what's her name? Apparently, I'm just forgetting words and apps today. Uh, But time affluence, feeling like we are affluent in time, in free time, is something that contributes to actual happiness as we go through our days. And so when I was learning about this, I thought, when do I feel most time affluent? And it is when I am lying down, not usually sitting up. I'm usually lying down either on the couch or in the bed reading. That makes me feel, or in the hammock. Oh my God, in the hammock or on the beach. Oh my God, reading on the beach. Oh, that's when I feel richest in the luxury of time. And y'all, if I just give myself 15 minutes to read, I don't even think of it as 15 minutes. I think of it as go to the couch and I'm going to lie down and I'm going to read. And during those 15 minutes, I feel rich. I feel like I have so much time in the world and I enjoy the reading so much. So giving the reading to myself as this kind of treat has been one of the best ways that I have upped my reading. 
this morning, literally, I was sitting on the couch. I, I had just received in request four different library books. And what I usually do is I turn on my Kindle. I have a paper white. I turn on my Kindle. I download the Kindle books. And then I turn the Kindle off of what I, I put it into airplane mode. So now it can't connect to Wi-Fi. And then I go into my Libby app and I return the books. So anybody who's behind me in line will get the book early. I've only had it for 15 minutes. But as long as I don't turn my paper white back onto the wireless, those books will not be stripped off the Kindle. They will stay there until I go off of wireless. So this morning I had four books to choose from. I had one thriller. I had one nonfiction, um, which I'm really excited about. And I also can't remember the name of, but I will share it with you. It's a new productivity book and it's about um, basically finding productivity in joy, feel good productivity. That's what it's called. I started it. That's the one I chose to start. I'm loving it already. Uh, take that back. I bought that one. I was too far down the list for that one. I tried a sample chapter and I couldn't wait for the library book. So I bought it and that's how I do a lot of things. And then I had a um, another nonfiction book and uh, women's fiction all land. And I just had to sit on the couch. I had just finished my book two minutes earlier while I was eating my toast and I still had time to read. So I got to choose the next book I read and oh boy, it feels so good. So that is, those are some of my recommendations. Um, build time into your day where you can sneak reading. I always also read before I go to sleep. It's how I go to sleep. It's how I wind down. If a book is really good and really tense, I have to read something else. I'm always usually reading some kind of um, meditation book, book on meditation or Buddhism or something like that that can help me uh, go to sleep. But I read at night, I read after I eat, and I try to sneak it in all the other places so that I can feel rich in time. If I'm doing that, I'm reading a lot. And if I'm reading a lot, I am a better writer. So Brian, thank you for asking that awesome, awesome question. I really appreciate it. All right, let's jump into the interview now with Jeff. Jeff Elkins is a writer, podcaster, and writing coach. He's the author of 11 novels, including Inside, Outside, and The Adventures of Watkins and How Detective Series. He helps writers engage with readers by teaching them how to write better dialogue as the Dialogue Doctor podcast. He has a BA in Religion from Baylor University and a Master's in Divinity from Truett Seminary. He lives with his wife and five kids north of Baltimore, Maryland. Here is the interview. Please enjoy, and I wish you very, very happy writing and reading, my friends. We will talk soon. Well, I could not be more pleased to welcome back to the show, my friend. Will you please share your name and your pronouns with us? Uh, Jeff Elkins and he, him. Hello. Nice to see hey, you. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. So I looked and you were on episode number 215, and that was almost three years ago. Yeah. So for wild. people who want kind of your backstory, they can run back there and they should to listen to that. But will you catch us up a little bit, um, Mr. Dialogue Doctor? Tell us yeah. what's so, been going on um, since then. I am the Dialogue Doctor now fully. Sure I think when we talked, I had just launched it. Uh, it was yeah it was new and you were it was new yeah and i was terrified <laughs> um but yeah so uh you know i do a weekly podcast i do um a weekly newsletter that helps uh writers uh with their craft specifically characterization and writing more engaging dialogue um we have a community going of about 120 or so authors that are pretty active um and i love it because it's a it's a definitely a learning community like we have a good time we 
you know, share fun pictures and stuff, but it is, we are all definitely there to learn and work. So it's a uh, pretty driven community. And there's three dialogue doctor coaches. Now there's me and Laura hum, who's been uh, my editor and a uh, good friend for over 20 years now. And um, awesome. then uh, JP Reinflesh, who is a uh, amazing author of all things uh, queer, dark and strange. And he, mm-hmm. um, He's our coach. He's come on as an editor and a coach with the Dialogue Doctor too. So we and um we do coaching. Did you recently yeah. do a, a a project with him, a book with him? Yeah, we write a uh, we write a Vela together. That's actually how right, we got connected. Right. He was doing a podcast on Vela and reached out to me and did say, "Hey, have you thought about doing a Vela?" He was going to ask me to enter to interview for his podcast, and I was like, "No, let's do one together." And so <laughs> we. <laughs> So we started, we started one together um, and it's been fun. He and I've been writing together for uh, man about a year and a half now. We're in, we're deep into season two of our Vela and um, yeah, the first one got a little out of hand. It was uh, we published it as a book after we ran the serial and the book came out to close to 250,000 words. I think it's a monster. It's a monster. That's the danger of serial. Yeah. yeah, we just kept going. And there's a lot like, you know, if it were a raw novel, there's a lot of scenes we probably wouldn't have written. But when you're like, I got to get one, you just write <laughs> crap. So that's, uh, yeah, but yeah, so that's, that's how, and you know, I'm, um, I'm still writing. I have a, I just got my first um, trad published contract, which is interesting. Congratulations. Uh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, Lake Drive Publishing reached out to me to write a memoir, which is a fascinating. So, wow, handed that manuscript in in, uh, in November. Um, Congratulations! How did it feel to write the memoir? Terrifying. This is the worst. Yeah. I'm not sure the right fiction. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very vulnerable, and you just feel very exposed all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's funny. He, I gave it to him uh, in um, September. And he was like, you know, let's take another pass at it at like, you know, and it needs to be like it, it edited a little bit more. Cause I was like, he's like, how do you feel about it? I was like, I don't know. And so he was like, well, take another swipe at it. He's like, I'm not going to get to it until November. So I took another swipe at it with the intention of adding. And I actually cut like another 10,000 words. That's a good sign. No, that's a great sign. If you could do it, you should do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I awesome. definitely could, and I definitely did, and I handed it back to him. I was like, I think if you let me take another pass at it, this is going to end up being a pamphlet, so <laughs> I probably should look at it again. Oh, that's so exciting, though. Yeah. Welcome to hybrid hybrid writing. Um, let's talk about how you came to loving dialogue. Remind us how you became the dialogue. Yeah, writer. so I um I don't have a you know traditional writer background. I was um working in nonprofits um, with all kinds of different populations. And I think that's when my real passion for people and understanding how people communicate started. Um, that was long before I was a writer. And so just learning how people have to, have to you know, switch their voice in different settings and different professions and different ways that they talk. And really for me, the, you know, the, especially the minority and like unhoused populations I was working with coming to understand that like, oh, this is how I have to talk to these people to get the people I'm working with what they need. Um, so that was, uh, 
that was kind of my start of like noticing like, oh, people talk differently and voices are different. And I really need to learn. And, I, you know, there's a lot of reading people's tone and gestures. And then when I started writing fiction, it became very natural to kind of translate those settings into the page. And then uh, that uh, transitioned to me into a full-time job where I work for a company uh, that uh, creates virtual role plays that train professionals in difficult conversations. So uh, for the last nine years, my day job has been as a professional mimic. So I go into rooms with world-class experts in a like huge variety of subjects, and I listen to how they do their uh, conversations, like where they go wrong, where they go right, the right way they want them, all the way down to like, you know, what word do you use in this sentence? And like, how do you want this sentence intoned? And, you know, um, and then we create characters that uh, feel like you're talking to real people. Uh, we specialize in emotional uh, intelligence. So it's a artificial emotion um, instead of artificial intelligence is what we build. And so they... Um, yeah, so then when I started writing, I was uh, listening to you and Jay on your podcast together, oh, you and Jay Thorne, and um, <laughs> on that amazing podcast. And uh, I got on a call with Jay because I was really struggling. I I was kind of my kid was going to college, and I desperately needed money. Um, Jay did a whole podcast series on this, in which I wept like a baby talking about <laughs> this. So I'm not going to do that now. Uh, and so I. Uh, yeah, I, I, he was like, well, you need to take all these skills you have in dialogue and help edit and coach people. So I tried a little editing and I, I, I'm a much better coach uh, than I am an editor. You know, I am, uh, I have uh, way more Ted Lasso in me than I do um, <laughs> a critic. So I am, uh, I love hanging out with a writer for like, like my favorite thing is to get 3000 words from a writer. Look at those 3000 and find where they're struggling because it usually takes me about 3,000 words to figure out okay here's and then give them tools that they can use through the rest of their book that's that my favorite thing in the world is yeah. excellent that is really really awesome okay so you kind of built this skill set and then you realized you were really freaking good at it and you could utilize it the um the new book is called the dialogue doctor will see you now how to write yeah. dialogue and characters readers will love. Yep. So it's kind of 101 for our community. Like we've, we've yeah. developed working with this group of authors over the last three years. And at this point I've edited, I've coached more than 200 authors over the last three years and some of them long-term, like I've had uh, some coaching clients that I've worked with for years. And I've had some coaching clients that I've worked with, like, Hey, let's do like three sessions. And then that's really all you need. But we've developed a language. We'd, we'd find problems. Me and the other coaches would find problems when we we're working with writers. And then we'd be like, Hey, we need some kind of unifying language or tool to help with this problem we're seeing over and over again. So we developed all these tools like the Dialogue Daisy or the Vea uh, cast building tool. Um, I think we talked about the Daisy the last time you were on the show. I think so. That, that was, was the yeah. first one we built. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or we talk about now the energy and intimacy knobs and like we built all these tools to like help people get through the common problems we see. And they were like, we need this in a book. So we, I put together the, the book is all the tools we've learned over the last three years. What do you think is the most, I know this is hard to answer, but you know, the, the, the most common problem or two that you see. That you mm, that's a great with. question. I think, you know, 
I'll give you the most and then the one that we've dealt with most recently. Mm. Um, the most common problem is character voice. And you and I talked about that at the last. And that's still if forever. We now have a, you know, in addition to the daisy, we have a um, five uh, five components of character voice is what we talk about now. So we talk about like, hey, let's take your character's personality. Let's whittle that personality down into three adjectives to describe your character. And then let's take those three adjectives and let's say, how does that sound? What topics does that person talk about? What, um, you know, language does that person use routinely? So like if there's like a saying or a catchphrase or like, you know, a um, energetic character may say, oh, wow, a lot. Or like, you know, uh, a character that's very self-deprecating may be like, I don't know. Like, you know, you're you're finding those like common phrases that you want your character to use. Mm -hmm. We talk about body language as an expression of character voice. We talk about... Um, the construction of the utterance uh which is like you know when the character speaks on the page what does that vocalization look like on the page is it long is it short are there lots of commas like what's the common grammar for that character and then we talk about the um pacing in a conversation like how in a conversation of three or more how often is your character jumping into that conversation because it varies based on personality so using that tool is the tool we use most often because i think writers um there's just not a lot out about constructing a character voice it's kind of like well if you know how to do it you know how to do it mm -hmm. and so i i found that answer not very helpful so we <laughs> that's why we like moved into this like hey let's systematize it let's figure it. and my work as a um uh as a mimic in my day job really helped with that because we talk about not in the same way but we talk about this all the time like what does this character sound like how do they behave what are their mannerisms um I think the most, the problem we're dealing with recently, though, that we've seen a lot is uh, we call your main character a vehicle character. We don't, uh, we avoid the words protagonist and antagonist or hero and villain because they immediately label your character with a quality that uh, I think hinders you in empathizing with your character. Mm, so if you're like, this like is the that. hero, yeah. you start to like think like, oh, how is this the good guy? And if this is the antagonist or this is the villain, you're like, how is this the bad guy? And to to write really deep and beautiful characters, you need to be in their emotional journey. And so we started talking about the vehicle character as the character that your reader is on an emotional journey with. So the and usually it's the point of view character or it's like the main character that we see all the time. Uh, it's that character that your, your reader is emotionally connected to and following through. The problem we've seen recently is that writers don't define their vehicle very often. And a lot of times I'll be working with a writer and they're like, we're seven chapters in and then all of a sudden we're flipping POV. And we only flip POV for like a chapter. And then we come back and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Am I going back to this character? Because you just connected me emotionally to that character mm -hmm. by putting me in their POV. We need a growth arc, right? Like we need to understand. And then we get a lot of people being like, well, what if I have like a third party narrator or, you know, a big question has been like, what if my character doesn't grow? Because um, we say like all vehicles need a growth arc because that's the emotional yeah. journey that your reader is going on. So we've developed uh, at the Dialogue Doctor five types of vehicles. We talk about a main vehicle, which is like the primary, that has a central growth arc that's dynamic that moves through the plot, a side vehicle that has like a small growth arc, um, a third party narrator, which is like uh, 
Oh, like in the book Thief by Mark Zuckus, the like death is the narrator of that book. Mm. So death is this third party looking down or like Elizabeth Gilbert, a lot of times will write uh, her main characters, the her books in first person, but her main characters telling you the story from the future. So mm-hmm. she's like described that's that third party narrator, um, a chorus vehicle, which means you take a group of people and they are the emotional journey together. So like in, um, in the screenplay, uh, the social network, uh, you have the Winklevoss twins and their friend, whose name I'm forgetting. They serve as a single emotional journey, even though they break those characters up and you'll get like one scene with one of them. The three characters are on an emotional journey together. So oh, we talk about like, yeah. how do you take that? Like, how do you use that kind of vehicle in your writing? making sure that you're always charting those three characters in the same emotional path. You're never breaking them up. Uh, And then we talk about the Messiah vehicle, which is the, like, this vehicle doesn't grow. Everybody else grows around them. Um, uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot has one of these. It's a vehicle that, like, doesn't change. I find them a lot in Christian literature. They're, like, vehicles that, like, represent some kind of deity figure that is unchanging. And I, I actually, the community and i argue all the time about jack reacher potentially being one of these about a character that doesn't change but forces everybody else to change around him so understanding your vehicle and then once we understand your vehicle or how many you have because a lot of times they'll be like well like mark zuckus has death but then he also has the girl and you're on an emotional journey with both of so that's a two vehicle book and talking about like okay now that we know the vehicle and how many vehicles you have how are we structuring these plot arcs to and ensure that the reader has a fulfilling emotional journey with each vehicle. So yeah, that's, that's the problem we're working on a lot now. I think part of it has to do with our communities maturing and a lot of the people that started with us two and a half years ago are finishing their first books. So it's that like, Hey, now that you're getting to a place where you can see your full book, let's talk about what's happening in that story structure. So how much does, um, how much of this work, do people normally do in a first draft versus a revision? Cause I know in my books, I am a crappy first drafter and then mm-hmm. revision is where I fix all this stuff. I don't even personally, I don't even bother with voice in a first draft because yeah. I'm still learning who the most important characters are and how they're going to change. Yeah. And you're probably getting that character voice like two thirds of the way through the book you're like, oh, or not even like, is. like 99% yeah. of the way through is when they finally yeah. start to speak to me I'm like, Oh, okay. There you are. And now gotcha. I can yeah. go put it in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, we, um, that's one of the reasons I call myself a coach and not an editor because I don't want to change your process. And I think that's super important. I think a lot of times, um, you know, as teachers, we prescribe certain things. We're like, oh, this is how you write a book. And the truth is, like, the hardest thing about writing a book, especially if you're in your first couple, is the motivation of it. How do you mm-hmm. keep going yeah. when it's hard? And so for me, I don't want to change your process. Whatever's working, we're going to come into that. So for a, a pantser like you, I would tell you, like, hey, don't work with us until you finished your first draft. Yeah. And then once you finish your first draft, let's sit down and talk about like, where do you feel the struggle? Where do you feel the pull? Let us help you there. And a lot of times um, people like you that like need to get that first vomit draft out or that first like rough draft, it's like super rough draft out. A lot of times they like three of the characters they'll know really well. And then they'll be like, this one character is is lost. 
And that's where we'll sit down and we'll be like, okay, let's talk about how your cast interworks with each other. Let's talk about how we can like create a character voice that enhances the growth arc of the rest of the cast as opposed to a character voice that is just going to stand out there. We analyze what type of character it is. Is it a vehicle injured, anger, or hazard? And then we talk about you know what those personality types you want how those personality types are going to encourage or hinder the other characters around them and then build that character voice from there but if you're a big plotter and you're like i have to have a whole system down before we do that we do that first we're like okay let's do this work first and then let's come into writing so it just it like i try not to change anybody's practice i try to be like that's great because everyone's practice is going to be different and that will and that is true yeah. across the board. Um, but but similar questions always come up. And I know that something that uh, this actually just came up this week with a, um, a couple of students. And I would love to ask you how to and effectively use dialogue tags. Oh, especially when we're thinking about like the number of yeah, characters yeah. that you have at a scene. Yeah. So there's I'm going to get this wrong. Four uses of dialogue tags. Sorry, I'm doing this from memory. <laughs> you don't you don't um, have to get them wrong or right because people will get the book and they will walk themselves through. But what, yeah. do, what how do dialogue tags? First of all, for newbies, perhaps, perhaps uh, tell us what a dialogue tag is and how to use yeah, so them. So the basic use of a dialogue tag is the he said, she said of it all. It's like right. he said, she said, they said, um, you know, body language can also count as a dialogue tag. It's kind of anything that that um, tags the character to a vocalization. Body language is weird because it can also act as, so the way we break it down is we say each character has an, uh, there's exchanges, which are characters going back and forth. So if you have two characters in a conversation, when they both speak, it's an exchange. Um, When you have three or more, it gets kind of funky because they don't all need to speak in every exchange, but it's when a character repeats, you're in your next exchange. We talk about utterances as the character's participation in the exchange, and then that utterance can be verbal or nonverbal. So a nonverbal body language uh, is can be an utterance from a character like that. That may be their participation in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we vocalize, when we get that verbal utterance, the dialogue tag identifies who is speaking, whether it's body language or it's, you know, just like he said or she said um, or they said. Uh, or I, I mean, there's so many pronouns. I could keep going. We'll just stop there. But so, sorry, now my mind is like, well, we list off all 27 <laughs> pronouns. We're not going to do that. Just know that I, I include you, whoever I prefer <laughs> yes. include you. Yeah. Um, so that, um, when we talk about that, the common advice everybody gets is never use them. Never use dialogue tags. I, I I can't tell you how many people I see That's on social media. So weird. We it's so we weird. Have, we have to use them. They're great. Yeah. They're fabulous. I, I saw an agent on social media. I'm going to leave their name out of this. I saw them on social media recently saying, if you send me a manuscript with a dialogue tag, I won't even read it. That's and I was like, That's insane. Yeah. And the reason I would, that's insane. I would not read a book that didn't have them. If I'm confused about who's talking, I'm not going to go right? past page two. Yeah, and yeah. what it ends up happening is the, the more words we have in an utterance, the slower that utterance feels. If you think about the reader's imagination as the reader sitting in an audience watching a stage play of your novel, if the utterance is long, you're giving a player on the stage a monologue, mm-hmm. which is appropriate for some character voices, but like 
if you and that includes their dialogue tag so if you're removing like he said she said they said and you're like oh i'm just going to give everybody body language to explain who they are you're gonna have these massively long dialogue tags and you're just slowing down your work like you're Mm -hmm. losing all of that great like you know nora efron aaron sorkin type energy and dialogue you're losing all of it because you're like weighing it down with this huge yeah so we I reject that advice completely. Me too. So, yeah. If anybody says that to you, be like, okay, and then go find another agent. <laughs> um, so th- there's a lot of them, don't worry. Um the uh so the uses for it are like it identifies who's speaking, right? And that's like the base level of it. Uh it also enhances emotionally who's uh the the vocalization itself. So if you want to see somebody do this beautifully, Tony Morrison's beloved. I think it's the best work I've ever seen to use dialogue tags to enhance what people are saying. And mm-hmm. she'll throw an adjective in like, mm-hmm. you know, um, also not sappy. against the law. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like Sethi expressed violently is very different than Sethi said, right? Like it brings a whole different intonation in the reader's imagination of the stage play happening when you would give them that guidance in how they imagine their book. Uh, the third way we can use them is to actually construct the pattern of the utterance. So, you know, if you're writing a shy character and you're using a lot of body language, I often am going to tell you to put the body language before they speak because it makes them feel reluctant and slower. Yeah. Or if you're writing a thoughtful character and you're using like inner thoughts for that character, put the inner thought before they speak. Because that makes them feel like I'm thinking and then I'm talking. It makes them feel thoughtful. But if you're writing a character that's abrupt and always blurting things out, you want the vocalization first and then the dialogue tag at the end. Mm-hmm. Because it changes the construction of that utterance. Or if you you can actually play with even, and again, Toni Morrison's a great one to look at because she's a master of doing these dialogue tags. But you can even play with how the dialogue tag changes the construction of the utterance so you can put the like you know um i'd love to have some ice cream tony said uh is different if you go i love to tony said have some ice cream yeah you can hear how that just that just that tiny dialogue tech gives like a beat yeah. in there of that like difference in in the construction of the utterance and then the final thing is is how you use those dialogue texts can very much define the character voice so the character voice will will modulate and change um like i was saying with like a shy character you want a lot more body language and a lot and a much smaller vocalization so making sure that when your shy character has an utterance you're using that dialogue strategically to communicate the character voice and what the character sounds like yeah so they're great tools they're fantastic tools we should not throw them away but part of the key is like knowing what your tool does and how you use it i think master writers like when i read you know writers that have stood the test of time, like, you know, down to like Jane Austen and Hemingway or like Morrison or even like, you know, Brandon Sanderson, more modern people or like Grisham or like all across genres, they've mastered how to use those dialogue texts. And you can see them. You just have to open up any of their books and you can see that they're using them in all of those ways. And it's, it's a, you know, inherent thing that we, like great artists know how to use their tools. Yeah, and that's and, part of what we're doing. And we, as people who are learning, are looking at those and copying. And I do mean copying. We can look at 
what somebody does and copy it into our work. We're not plagiarizing, but we're copying the motion of what they're doing and playing with it. What is a um, one useful exercise that you would assign a person oh, newly playing with questions. dialogue? Yeah. Well, the way that I look at tools is when I run into a problem, like the way we've developed all of these, like the Daisy and the the Vea and the the cast construction stuff that we do. What we do is when we hit a problem, we pull out masterworks. Like that's how we come up with tools. It's not like I'm sitting in a room with a whiteboard dreaming this stuff up. Like <laughs> I have I have a list of about 50 masterworks. And when I when across all genres and time mm -hmm. over the last, you know, couple hundred years and when when we get stuck it's like well let's go look at how morrison does that let's go look at how Hemingway does that let's yes. go you know let's go look at how austin does it like let's take a look at these people that have kind of set the tone for what we do um so i would say like we talk a lot about how writers need to read differently but I think a, a good thing to do is find your favorite books, find the authors you like to mimic and read it with a single question in mind. What am I doing with this character's voice? What am I doing with dialogue text? What it, how does the cast work? Mm -hmm. um, we also, I also recommend watching movies and reading screenplays. This is something that like we do in the community. Uh, we have a zoom call twice a month and um every other month one of those zoom calls is we watch a movie and read the screenplay while we watch it and the reason we're doing that is because the the modern reader is more inundated with visual media than they are with literary media not not i mean that's a gross generalization but mostly yeah so understanding how dialogue works in a screenplay is really going to empower your novel so Besides just like reading with intention, watching with intention is important. And a lot of a lot of great movies, their screenplays are free online. You yeah, just you go. just Google them and they, yeah, they come right up. Yeah, has so much and you just yeah. Google it and there it is. Because those writers have put that screenplay online, allowed it to be used for people to learn from. So it's a, yeah, it's a great resource. Um, I think in writing, uh, another exercise I recommend is we do a lot of writing prompts and short stories but we do writing prompts very like intentionally so uh, i actually publish one every tuesday and we'll have a book of writing prompts coming out in 2024 that um take you from like they're intended to train you to write dialogue so each day there's another thing that's like hey do this thing in dialogue um but we we like writing prompts being like okay i usually don't write this kind of character Right. My characters are typically, you know, badass lone wolves. If you're an urban fantasy author, that's like mm -hmm. most of the time. It's like badass lone wolf in their 20s. Let me take a scene that I wrote with a badass lone wolf in their 20s and let me rewrite it with a shy octogenarian. I love it. Let's see how the voice changes. Right. Yeah. Keep everything the same except the utterance yeah. that the character says. And sometimes I'll go through and I'll highlight all those utterances in, in like a color on my screen and I'll be like, okay, all the yellow utterances, I need to change that character's voice to match this kind of character. And just the act of thinking that through is a great way to start to learn how do I write different characters? But I think a lot of times as writers, we shy away from that kind of work because we think like, well, what good is this, right? Like we're so focused on publishing. We forget that like, this is a sport. And it's a contact sport. Like, like writing is a contact sport <laughs> in which you are having emotional engagement with the reader 
all the mm-hmm. time. And like any other sport, practice is necessary. And so, and a lot of times the things we practice aren't going to directly translate to pages that we can publish. And I think there's a, you know, I know it's tough with the like write fast publish repeat culture we've been in for the last, you know, however, I think Becca Sam traces it to 2014, but um, however long back we want to trace it. Um, there is an advantage though to maybe taking one day a week and slowing down and like playing with character voices, playing with, or a lot of times I'll be like, okay, you've got two characters in this scene. Add a third. See, make it a big cast scene. What do you need to change? How are you using dialogue text? Because that'll push you to like, how do you use dialogue tags here? When is this character going to speak in this? How do you add them in, right? Like it's a great exercise that will pay off when you go to write a uh, what we call a big cast scene, which is three to uh, six characters. So, which most of us struggle with. I know that I do, and I really like this emphasis on practice. That uh, we could, we can think about it all day long. We can read your book all day long, but until you're actually like doing the practice, yeah. I keep seeing somebody like on a soccer field doing, doing the boring practice that yeah. actually pays off. Yeah, when I played, I played baseball in high school, and um when I played, you know, for hitting a ball, I used to just stand and like work on how my left foot stepped and how the weight transferred in my hips. I wasn't swinging a bat. I wasn't hitting a baseball. I wasn't in a game. I, you know, it was just me standing there working on like, okay, this is how this feels when I'm doing it right. And then I just work on like, Hey, here's how my wrists snap when I pop that ball or I was a pitcher. So there's a lot of like, Hey, here's the footwork of coming off the mound. I had no ball in my hand. I had no glove. We're just like running that footwork over and over and over again. Or you was to say, I played football too. And it was the same, like, you know, we're just going to tackle a dummy for like an hour. We're just going to sit here and tackle this so we can get the footwork right. We can get the, we can learn how to line up our shoulders and learn how to do all these things. So yeah, so thinking of writing as a sport and thinking of like the intentional practice is going to improve your game time later. And so it's worth it, even though it feels like you're not going to have pages to produce, it's worth it in the end because the pages you produce are going to be better and they're going to come out smoother. Yeah, brilliant. Jeff, this has been wonderful. I'm so excited about your new book and everything that you're doing. Where can we find you and all of your work and coaching and all of that? Yeah, dialoguedoctor.com. Um, is the place where you find everything. There's a learning button where you can sign up for like the newsletter and the, um, and find the podcast. There's a, uh, we also have a community that you can join uh, and the book is there too. Uh, the Yeah. And if you want a primer to be like, do I actually want to engage in this uh, weirdness? Yeah. The Dialogue Doctor Will See You Now is the, uh, is the first book. Oh, fabulous. It is always a joy to talk to you. And I wish you the very best with all of this. And thank you. Dialogue is such a challenge for so many of us. So thank you. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Ink in Your Veins. You can reach me at my website, rachelherron.com. And you can also support me at patreon.com slash Rachel, R-A-C-H-A-E-L, where I have all sorts of great stuff for writers for as little as a buck a month. And do sign up for my free writer's email list of encouragement at rachelherron.com slash write. Now, get to writing, my friends. Thank you.